The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello and welcome to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Liam Proud, a columnist in London. This week, we'll be talking to our Africa specialists about a few of the continent's big countries and why their economic growth isn't quite keeping up with the population growth. But first, the big news of the week. European leaders have been fighting it out over the last few days about who will get the top roles in the Commission, Council, Parliament and Central Bank, all of which are up for grabs this year. Since they finally seem to have come to an agreement, I sat down with a couple of clued-in colleagues of mine to discuss what the great big European jobs carve-up means for the continent's citizens. So, I am here with Swaha Pasnik, our Global Economics Editor, and Peter Tell Larson, the EMEA Editor. So, Swaha, let's start with the European Central Bank. I mean, we've had this big EU jobs carve-up. I mean, what are the kind of big headlines? I mean, Christine Lagarde is probably the most familiar name to a lot of our listeners. Yeah, she is the head of the IMF at the, well, was until she recused himself from that post because she got nominated to be uh, Mario Draghi's successor at the helm of the European Central Bank. Um, It's a very um, interesting choice. First woman. She's had a lot of firsts uh, as a woman. She was the first IMF head uh, who's a woman. She was the first Baker McKenzie law firm head uh, chair. And she's going to be the first ECB chair. So uh, interesting pick. So, so what does it mean for the way that ECB is going to be run? Do you think? Was it was it kind of imply for what, what? What are you expecting? So one of the things about Christine Lagarde that's also a first is she's also the first head of ECB that has not got central banking experience already right. in her back pocket. So one of the things that she's likely to do is spell continuity with Draghi's policy, which is firmly on a path of more easing if we need it. Um, That's a relief for markets, and we saw a little bit of a tick up today in the stock market and in bond prices and a little bit of a dip in the euro as people took that on immediately. Expecting, you know, a dovish successor, basically. Just more of the same, basically, because she hasn't staked out a central bank policy that's all her own. She doesn't have the policy sort of in experience. So she comes with a fresh eye to it, but she's also likely to mean continuity because of that. Yeah. But she also, she brings a lot of crisis fighting experience, right? Mm. So she brought... She came into the IMF um, uh, as it was embroiled in the whole Greek situation, which was a controversial thing for the IMF to have done in the first place and a a big commitment. And she sort of pulled the IMF back from that. And um, there are some kind of pointers in what she did at the IMF that that point to what she might do at the ECB. So she was definitely uh, sort of constructive in terms of sort of lending to Greece. Um, but also quite tough in terms of holding the IMF accountable mm-hmm. about its decisions and the mistakes it had made. And actually also when you think about the sort of policy advice that she has dispensed, which obviously IMF heads do as a matter of course, you know, she's been quite vocal about the need for Germany to increase fiscal spending, for example, to deal with the imbalances in the Eurozone. And I guess one of the interesting things will be to see whether she that that is consistent uh, in terms of how she approaches the new yeah. job or whether she changes her tune a bit. I don't think she will, actually, because I think her predecessor, Draghi, has done a lot of that. I mean, to be fair to both of them, I think the Germans do what they want, unfortunately. Yeah, they, but oh, I don't yeah. think she, she won't have to do a sort of about turn necessarily because her predecessor has also been calling for that, though to little avail. But it's not the only top job that is changing hands, right? I mean, we you know, every four years you have this big kind of you know, reshuffle, this big... European power politics. I mean, Peter, who else is? 
Well, this is this is a bigger carve up than normal, um, uh, and it's been a pretty unedifying spectacle. Mm. Um, and uh, I remember when this process was beginning, a uh, wise old uh, person that I know from Brussels said, um, you know, every time they go through this process, people spend hours trying to figure out all the different permutations and who will get what job. And in the end, you always end up with one or two people that nobody expected at the beginning of the process. And so it has proved. Yeah. Because um, the person who's... More than one or two. Well, exactly. <laughs> the person who's ended up in charge of the commission is, is Ursula von der Leyen, the, the, the German defence minister, who really wasn't being talked about at all in this context until, I don't know, couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, so and certainly never campaigned. <laughs> no, exactly. So she's, nor is she in any way associated with the parliament or with the parliamentary elections. Obviously, there was a big push to sort of try and get some sort of representation mm. uh, for the for the, the candidates put forward by the parties in the parliament. Yeah. Um, that's been completely swept aside. So, um, so that's a surprise. Lagarde is a surprise. Um, and then some of the other sort of um, some of the other the jobs are also a bit less surprising, but 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 sort of unusual. Um, um, so we have the Belgian Prime Minister, Mr. Michel, uh, who's now going to lead the council, replacing um, Donald Tusk. Replacing Donald Tusk, who was from from Poland, who was doing that job. So there's there's quite a big shakeup, and and I have to say it does feel like um, the way in which these jobs have been decided have been decided very much on the basis of. Uh, a nationality. Mm -hmm. So we have a French woman, uh, sorry, a German woman at the at the commission. Yeah. We have a French woman uh, at the ECB. Gender obviously was another issue. Yeah. They wanted to have more gender balance, um, and uh, uh, and then various countries sort of getting their getting their their, their people in the right place. Mm -hmm. um, party affiliation is another one. Competence, ability to do the job, vision for Europe. Those mm -hmm. kind of things have definitely been down the agenda. Yeah. And that's, in some ways, now the big question we face. So it's quite difficult to get a read from, you know, particularly in von der Leyen, as she wasn't campaigning for this. You know, there are a lot of people who were. You saw Franz Timmerman going around all the different capitals, the same with, you know, Hofstad uh, and Vestager. You haven't had that from a lot of people that have actually ended up in the job. So it's all a bit of a mystery. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There, it is. And, and, and there are some big decisions to be made, right? I mean, there's... You know, there's, yeah, what there's, they, what, what's going to occupy these people? Well, I think probably much the same as occupied their predecessors. But I mean, you've got you know the ongoing question about the eurozone economy, financial integration, uh, burden sharing of debt or not. Um, how will that play out? That will obviously also involve uh, the ECB to a certain extent, especially as the ECB is now talking about returning possibly to money printing in a downturn and um, uh, or bond buying, I should say, in a downturn. Um, so that will be an ongoing question, whether those tensions can get resolved. But also there's a big security, pan-European security question. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen is on the record as being quite in favour of sort of more pan-European right. uh, military cooperation uh, now that the US is a less reliable partner. Mm -hmm. um, and so it'll be interesting to see whether that gains traction. Yeah. Um, Immigration, uh, you know, kind of, sorry, the, 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 these these issues um, continue, um, yeah. and also obviously the big thing that where, the, where Europe has arguably made the most impact uh, in the past few years is on antitrust and on competition. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, Liam, because you've covered uh, a few of the really high-profile cases mm. uh, recently. Um, what what do you think we should have for the next European antitrust SAR? I think you know you've seen in the last two you know competition committees commissioners have been quite strong people who've been willing to go against the kind of political pressure that you're susceptible in this role you know basically a lot of the time having to block or you know get quite big concessions from deals that 
are very politically popular. You saw that with Siemens Alstom, which was this train-making tie-up between Germany and France. Paris and Berlin were very much in favor of it. And Margaret Vestager, the current one, she actually said no. You know, arguably, you might say that's her, her chances of becoming the European commissioner. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of independence and that kind of, you know, willingness to basically piss people off in Brussels is quite an important trait. Um, and to piss off the US, obviously. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have these big tech companies which have basically been fined, you know, well over $10 billion um, now. You, you know, Apple, Google, various reasons, you know, you've seen some of them have been to do with tax, some of them have been competition. And, you know, there's actually a lot of kind of big thinking that needs to go on there at the moment. You saw Vestager has commissioned this big rethink of, you know, antitrust principles in the digital age. And so quite radical proposals are being put forward. So, you know, if you, if you get a kind of, you know, nobody drafted in who's kind of seems like they're going to, you know, not really have their own ideas, then you might, you, you might wonder whether they'll... Yeah. Or somebody who's drafted in who's taken such a sort of side with one, you know, yeah. either China or the US or well, exactly. anti, that you actually aren't seen as a neutral player. In yeah, the because whole. So you, you've seen, you know, Conte, the Italian prime minister, has said that uh, basically Italy has been promised this brief, that um, they will get to pick the commissioner. Now, I think as you were pointing out this morning, you know, Italy has kind of relatively enthusiastically embraced or at least, you know, said it's going to embrace this um, you know, Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which is, you know, this big infrastructure push from China. Now, that's going to be very controversial if the pick um, for the commission brief, um, the competition commissioner, is seen to be susceptible to that kind of way of thinking because, you know, a lot of the logic behind the big industrial tie-ups have basically been to try and keep China out of the markets. That was the whole point of siemens Alstom. So it's, it's yeah. But, but, I mean, Vestager is not going away. I mean, obviously, and she's, you know, she's, she's made quite an impact, wasn't she? I think Donald Trump? recently said, you know, she's, she yeah. hates America more than anyone else hates America or something like that. That's how you know you've made it. <laughs> um, that, and even that wasn't enough to get her the top job. But yeah. she will still be in, she'll be, I think, you know, uh, first, she, she, first seems vice like president. She'll be a senior vice president. Yeah, yeah. In, the, in the commission. So um, I think she briefs, will still have some clout. Yeah. But the I briefs tend to be sort of done very much by the director general that's handling it. So, yeah. I mean, I presume she'll be given an important portfolio and have other things well, she'll vote in commission. I'm not. I think you're right mm. that it will be really important who actually oversees this process with the credibility of that review. And, and it's worth pointing out that there is a kind of effort. You know, there was this Franco-German joint document that was put out um, just after Siemens Alstom was blocked, where they were basically saying, you know, we want to weaken antitrust principles. But anyway, so so let's just kind of wrap up wrap up with Brexit. I mean, is there anything that our UK listeners can? can take away from this, either positively or negatively, about how Europe is going to handle the final round of negotiations? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is obviously one of the big issues that's going to be in the intray uh, for the for the new commission. I mean, even before the new commission yeah. uh, arrives, because Britain is supposed to be leaving on the 31st of October. So it's, you know, it's even... Which is when these people are supposed to take up their seats. Exactly. Um, so um, I think basically there's, there's a lot of people reading the runes about you know, what does von der Leyen think about Brexit? What does Michelle think about Brexit? Do they think differently? Um, and there's probably, there'll be a bit of change of style and tone. I suspect that in, in real substance, the position won't change that much, which is that the EU will try to hold firm to uh, the sort of the principles, uh, the, the, the sort of pillars of the, the single market, uh, will stand by Ireland, will not throw those principles overboard in order to do a deal that, that suits the UK. Um, I guess the one big question really is whether, and this is partly 
down to what happens in the UK and who the Conservative Party chooses as its next uh, Prime Minister. But if it was to be, well, both of them are sounding pretty, pretty mm. hard, mm. Playing, playing pretty hardball at the yeah. moment, but particularly if it was to be Boris Johnson and he started sort of, you know, making all kinds of threats and, and um, then... There is, a, there is a possibility that um, come the 31st of October, the EU, even if asked for an extension, would refuse one and would basically force the UK out. I think they will resist that because they don't want to be... One of the policy strategies in all of this is to be not to be seen to be blamed for the yep. UK, for forcing the UK out. Um, but you can definitely sense that sort of patience is running yeah. out. Um, you know, you had the Brexit Party parliamentarians turning their back on the Parliament at the opening when when Beethoven's yeah. Ode to Joy was played. Um, those kind of things really uh, antagonise people, and so I think possibly just through the passage of time, um, the EU may be a bit less patient with the UK than it has been so far. Watch this space. Thank you very much, both. Now on to our second and final topic of the week. Ballooning populations mean that per capita wealth is actually falling in a few key democracies in Africa, like Nigeria and South Africa. That is a recipe for trouble, reckons our Africa specialist. We sat down in the London office and he explained why. So I'm here with Ed Cropley. Ed, thanks very much for your time. So you've been writing about economic growth in Africa and population growth in Africa and governance in Africa. Now, one's always a little bit wary of kind of you know, generalizing over a whole continent, but in the same way, we in the same way that we can say, you know, Europe is generally a slow growth country, a slow growth continent at the moment. There are some things that hold true for Africa as a whole, right? Um, and so, so what, what have you been looking at? Well, I mean, there are some some countries that are growing at a very very fast rate, and very exciting, um, and albeit from a slow base, and. Some examples, for instance, Rwanda, um, 25 years ago when we had the genocide, but now you're looking at 7 8%, 9% growth every year. Right. It's very exciting and for Rwanda, it's also quite exciting for Africa. The trouble is that Rwanda is only a nation of about 13, 14 million people, and its economy is still tiny. So for Rwanda to grow fast, to, if you're brutally honest, it doesn't make a big dent in the overall African picture. Right. So the really key economies you have to look at are the three big ones, that's South Africa, Nigeria, and Egypt. And how are they doing growth-wise? Well, th this is where the, the worrying trend comes out. Um, the two big democracies, um, South Africa and Nigeria, are not doing very well, to put it bluntly. Um, in fact, they are growing economically slower than their populations are growing. Right. So over the last f five years, um, the average Nigerian and the average South African per capita is actually worse off now than they were before. Right. If you look at Egypt, which has been under um, strongman Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, um, since 2014, uh, you've got a population growing at just over 2%, but you've got an economy that's been growing at consistently 4.5-5% a year. Wow. So if you are, uh, as many people are, a sort of a fan of democracy in Africa as a way of running a country better or running an economy better, you used to rely on South Africa and Nigeria's, you know, the props to, to, to bolster your argument. These shining examples. That's exactly it. And now it's a bit more difficult to make the positive argument from the two democracies and it's easier to make the, the counter-argument from countries like Egypt. I see. So let's, 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 we'll come back to the democracy in a minute, but let's just talk about the, the actual economic side of it there. So, I mean, so, so the, the, there was historically uh, a relatively quick growth rate in Africa, and it still grows a lot quicker than you know, most of the West, right? So why, why, was it, why has it grown relatively quickly, and, and why are you quite 
pessimistic about the future of, of economic growth. Well, the, the 1990s were pretty gloomy for Africa. Um, there was a lot of conflict, obviously, in Congo in 97-98 um, that spilled over into the rest, of the rest of the continent. But things really started to turn around in, in 2000. Um, and there are essentially four reasons that, that most people ascribe to this, this growth revolution and the start of the Africa rising narrative. The first one is debt forgiveness. Right. So a lot of Cold War era debt was just written off. The next one is high commodity prices. You know, oil at $120, $130 a barrel um, was, was supercharging some of these, uh, and, and Nigeria, Angola, for instance, these big commodity producers. You also had the, the uh, efficiency gains from technology like the mobile phone, right. um, and then later mobile banking um, via SMS in, in Kenya and beyond. Kind of eases the, you know, lubricates the economy. It lubricates bit, the economy. Yeah. People don't have to, they no longer have to store money in a mattress or they no longer have to, you know, hand money to a bus driver who's going out of country if you Got want it. to send, you want to send some, some money from Nairobi back to your, your relatives and, and your aunts and uncles up country. And then the final factor was a gradual improvement in governance, um, which is essentially seen uh, as in the form of more democracy uh, means politicians have to be more accountable, they're going to be less abusive, you're going to have better policies and you're going to have less corruption. Right. Um, and of those four factors, only one is still really applying and that's the, the uplift from technology. Right. Um, public debt levels are going through the roof again, mm -hmm. so budgets, uh, African budgets are finding themselves being squeezed um, by a large chunk of interest payments. Um, commodity prices are, are down on where they were in the middle of the super cycle pre-2008. And on the governance side, the evidence that we're seeing from countries like Egypt and South Africa, sorry, countries like Nigeria and South Africa, is that the, the, the supposed benefits of democracy really aren't translating into economic benefits. So why is that? What, what's, what's gone wrong in Nigeria and South Africa? I mean, you know, you look at the numbers and they do look like relatively sclerotic economies compared to where you would hope they'd be given the booming population. I mean, what, what's going on there? I think it's the, the two countries are obviously very different. They're they're sort of five hours flying time apart from each other. Um, but the the one common factor I think would be the the absence of decision making, right? Um, or at least the very slow pace of decision making. Um, in his first term in office, Mohamedou Buhari in Nigeria, it took him four months just to name a cabinet. Well, wow. um, similarly in South Africa, you've now had President Cyril Ramaphosa, who's taken over from. Jacob Zuma, um, who you know, lots and lots of allegations of corruption and, and very, very inefficient way of running the country. But because of the factionalism inside the ruling party in South Africa, Ramaphosa still hasn't managed to sort of stamp his authority on the party and in the government and, and roll out what he, whatever he hopes will be a reformist administration. So I think it's the democracies by nature tend to be noisier, they tend to be more um, competitive um, for ideas and, and space in the public sphere and the the, the noise and the competition and, and the factionalism that's coming mm. means that decisions aren't getting taken as quickly or indeed sometimes at all right. um, by the governments in charge. And these are crucial you know infrastructure and investment decisions and that's exactly it. I mean, yeah. If you look in South Africa, um, you have a heavily indebted uh, state power monopoly, yeah. um, desperately in need of a turnaround plan, but the turnaround plan is always, yes, yes, we're working on it, we're mm. working on it. Similarly, in, in Nigeria, um, there's a um, petroleum investment bill that has been sitting on a shelf in, uh, in Abuja in Parliament, gathering dust for years and years. 
So, so, so Nigeria really needs to, um, to push this bill through Parliament, get more foreign investment coming into the oil sector, mm. which is still absolutely vital to, to the lubrication of its economy. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, nothing's really happening. So, so the upshot of all this is, if you're thinking about a, you know, an African state that's potentially wavering on the, you know, balance of, you know, democracy versus favouring a strong man, um, the examples that you have to look to on the continent of democracy don't look so attractive. Um, is, it, is that right? Yeah, it, it's 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 dangerous game to say democracy is not working. Yeah. Um, obviously, because um, yeah, I firmly believe in in the power of democracy to enforce accountability. But the, the direct pass-through from supposed democratic governance improvements into mm. increased, uh, improved economic performance, it just isn't happening at the moment. Yeah. So I think what really needs to happen is that the democratically elected officials have to do their job better Got than it. they are at the moment. Because the, the consequences of big countries like Nigeria not growing properly, um, given the, the very, very rapid rate of population growth, are extremely severe. Um, you know, by the middle of the century, Nigeria is going to have 400 million people. So it will be the third largest country in the world after China and India. If those 400 million Nigerians don't have jobs and opportunities at home, yeah. they're going to vote with their feet. Um, you're, only, you're only sort of four hours from Europe by, by plane and you can drive to southern Spain in, right. in three or four days. Um, so the big fear is that a, an underperforming Africa is going to end up leaving Africa um, Right. Yeah, you know, before the middle of the century, and that's a huge worry for the rest of the world. And that would presumably make the the, the migration crisis that Europe saw over the past few years look like a straw in the park. That, that's that's indeed it. I mean, a lot of people in Brussels are we're looking at the at the migrant crisis from from the Middle East uh, almost as a, as a dry run for um, sort of the much more serious potentiality of of Africa um, sending far more people um, due due to economic underperformance at home. Right. Ed, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks to all our guests this week, and thanks especially to the very talented Freddie Joyner for producing this podcast. Dear listener, we appreciate your ears. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcasts for The Views Room, Exchange, and other Reuters podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com, reuters.com, and on Twitter at Breaking Views. Bye.